0: Welcome to MedTech Stories. I'm your host, Vishali. Our guest today is Jackie Keller. I've known Jackie for over five years, and she's the perfect person to kick off our show. She's the VP of Marketing at ClearPoint Neuro. And in this episode, she teaches us to trust our gut and jump into new opportunities with both feet. Listen in to see how she's done it multiple times in her career. So, you know, I've given our audience a little bit of background about your experience, but would love to hear your story as you've been in the industry for some time.
1: Yeah, so I have a pretty um, unique background. I said, as as you said in your opening, I don't come to medical device from the ways that, for example, you did through biomedical engineering and through and a lot of our colleagues have. I actually come to it through more of a liberal arts degree where I had a chance to do science as well as um, history languages. And then later, you know, after working for a while, did an MBA. And the the med device, how I came to it was I would say it's kind of a, a unique thing. It's not something I grew up wanting to do. I've I've followed opportunities and and it's been mostly based on people um, that I've wanted to work with. And those people then led me to other opportunities and and into med device. And it goes back to my, you know, one of my first real career jobs was at Johns Hopkins. I was an I was a medical interpreter. So I actually worked uh, in the international services department there, which is a very large department of a lot of patients um, with very rare diseases who end up at Hopkins who can't be treated anywhere else. And yeah, so I spoke French, I speak French and Spanish and and it was, uh, I had an opportunity through that to meet some really interesting physicians and researchers who are working on, you know, cutting edge um technologies, treatments. And I thought, wow, I, I would like to be part of that. How How can I be? And that's when I uh, did my MBA while working there and was lucky enough to be working with some interventional neuroradiologists who uh, did a lot of stroke work and did a lot of work with Toshiba. And they said, hey, you have a business degree and you know about money. And we we need help with our research. I said, I don't know anything about research. I said, it's okay, we'll teach you. You'll teach us about money. And then that's how it, it started. And it was so much fun.
0: Before saying, like, yeah, okay, let's do it, were you nervous? Like how did you kind of think through that opportunity? No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think that's you're going to see this theme through my life where I just go, oh, yeah, that's, let's go do that. And, and, uh, and without necessarily thinking through all the steps, but, you know, it, it becomes part of the the relationship, right? And the people that you know, and if they have confidence in you, then you kind of step up and you go, well, okay, okay they think I can do it.
0: So from there, how did you end up at Volcano and now Clearpoint Narrow?
1: Volcano was through PAP. Post a move to San Diego, so I was working in academic medicine, mostly in radiology on the research side, helping with grants, executing, uh, running, you know, clinical trials, really helping the department. I ended up moving from Hopkins up to Boston and worked at Boston Medical Center, Boston University. We built uh, we built this really interesting department. There's a lot of emergency medicine that happens at at, uh, Boston University based on where uh, the hospital is located. So we really developed a program in emergency radiology. Um, where we were publishing a lot. Also, you know, looking for grant opportunities and the Department of Defense funds programs in breast cancer and prostate research. And so we we wrote a grant uh, together with um uh, one of the breast radiologists and we're able to get this device that was a high resolution PET scanner um, that was optimized for breast imaging. And so when uh, my husband at the time got a job offer in San Diego, um, I was like, oh, I don't want to leave, but hey, this company that I've been working with, Naviscan and the PET scanner, was based in San Diego. And my, my wonderful chairman knew the CEO and made a call and said, I'm losing this person, but uh, I'd like her to be in good hands and, and would you consider hiring her? And that was my first foray into medical device from academic medicine. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a leap again, <laughs> but I said, oh, okay, maybe I can do that. That sounds good. You always learn in your experience on um, the jobs and the companies that uh, succeed, but you learn even more when they don't. And that was a really interesting technology, but it was very much of a hammer looking for a nail, where the biggest problem that breast imagers have is with screening technologies and screening mammograms. They don't necessarily need another advanced tool competing with an MRI scanner. And that's where we played. So it took off really well in the developing world where it was hard to have MRI. Um, so Latin America was gangbusters and that helped, You know, help, I was helpful there because I spoke Spanish, but uh, in, in the US where, where you want to have a, a big market, um, it, it was a bit of a challenge. The company still exists, um, but uh, at some point the writing was on the wall and I answered a job online. Never in my life has this happened for a company called Volcano. I knew no one. I knew nothing about cardiology. I came from breast imaging, radiology, neuroradiology, um, but no knew nothing about the heart. <laughs> and uh, I, probably a couple months later, I got a call from a guy named Joe Burnett. And uh, and it wasn't even HR who called me. It was the hiring manager, Joe. And, and he said, hi, my name is Joe Burnett. I'm calling from Volcano. And I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't heard from you guys. <laughs> and so I I met him and uh, and we had a great conversation. And he said, what I need from you is I need to talk to your key opinion leaders at your current job. And I said, well, they don't know I'm leaving. And these are my customers. And I said, uh, okay, let me try. And I did, I reached out to some of some of the customers I knew very well. And they were very gracious and spoke to Joe and they were, they understood why I was leaving and were, kept it confidential. And that's that's how that happened.
0: So you and Joe kind of met there he took a leap of faith, and you took a leap of faith at the same time. Um, how did all that pan
1: out? It was great. I mean, he just basically sat down and gave me all of the the research uh, that had been done in in fractional flow reserve. Of course, you know. So starting with the fame studies and everything before and after, and just said, you know, read these and summarize <laughs> them for me. And this is my your homework assignment before you start working here. And um, and that was that was really great because there was you know there was pretty deep history. Um, it, it's plumbing, so it's you know the heart is plumbing and uh, the brain is plumbing. What I've been working in, but it, but it, there's quite a big significant difference. Um, and then the level of evidence that is required by interventional cardiologists was uh, was pretty astounding. I hadn't seen that, of course, in, in any other um, in any, any other discipline I'd worked in. The outcome based data, the reimburs you know, the idea of um, health economics is really very impressive. How how interventional cardiology approaches that. So um, had a lot of catching up to do, but um, but I was really fortunate. I was paired with a guy named John Unser, who you know. So so John ended up reporting to me, and he'd been in the field and had been in in sales, and and so um, it was his first in in house job in corporate. And so I was kind of mentoring him on that, and then he was catching me up on the technology, and you know took me through a training and rolled out the cart, and we we did you know we did FFR. <laughs> it was it was, uh, it was it was really fun. It was really fun. So it's really about, you know, it's all about the people always.
0: It's so funny that you mentioned John Unser. I'm sure he'll listen to this eventually, but my first meeting with John Unser was very similar where he rolled out the FFR cart and we started playing with glycerin because that's what we assumed was similar to like the consistency of blood flow. So uh, yeah, great, great times uh, with a flow model at Volcano. So then, then what happened?
1: Uh, so, Volcano got acquired in 2015 by Philips, and so I was I was tapped to lead our marketing integration into Philips, and that was uh, that was a really great opportunity um, to learn kind of uh, best practice from how Philips did things, help them understand and bridge a gap of how devices work, single use devices because they didn't really have that in their portfolio, and just how different that sale is, and how different the touch points, and how much you know collateral you have to create because that you're. Salespeople are in there every single day and, and supporting cases, and so that was that was a really that was a really great opportunity, and it was uh, it was fun until it wasn't, and so <laughs> it was. Uh, um, I really enjoyed the integration. I really enjoyed working with 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 the team. Joe eventually left, and uh, after that, it just uh, it just wasn't the same, and it was time to move on.
0: I was part of the integration culture and everything too. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits that Philips brings. Um, it just, I think for me, it comes down to personalities and what you want to be working with, right? What, what are your thoughts on
1: that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Awesome. So then um, I think you went to Artemis Research, right?
1: I did. I did. I went to a uh, it was a privately owned company is still um, and it's a a series of clinical research sites where uh, they're performing uh, pharma research for psych, you know, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, as well as fibromyalgia vaccine studies. And I I really connected with the the owners. They were really great. And um, they wanted to do some interesting things and uh, brought me in as their head of sales or VP of sales and marketing. And when I say sales, it was really more inside sales. It was really running a call center um, with with a a group of really wonderful, all women (laughs) that worked for me. uh, Most of them, a lot of them, bilingual. um, And and we, you know, we kind of leaned out the process. We did a value stream mapping of how things went, and we brought in an executive coach for our leadership team, and that that was a wonderful experience. Really enjoyed that that whole experience and that team. But I was missing a product. I really missed being part of. Creating a product, it was creating a service, and it was creating a very good service. And it's a very interesting business model, and um, and you know where there is money to be made and, and really good work to be done. But I, I was just missing that tangible that tangible product, the product launch, and and the publicly traded company too. That that part of it was missing for me. So I got a call from Joe Burnett, <laughs> and he kept in touch over the years. But uh, this is about a, a, probably a couple of years after he left um, Phillips, and he said, "I'm I'm working on this thing." And he said, would you, would you want to come work for me? And we're, you know, we're going to be, you know, launching gene therapy in the brain and there's nothing approved. And uh, I'd like you to be part of it. And when someone like Joe Burnett calls you, you just say, yes. Like, you know, he says, jump and you say, hi, like I I'm, I'm in, I, you know, it wasn't even like, he didn't have to say anything. I just, it was like, I'm in. And that was um, in uh, just over a year and three months ago. So uh, I came in, we rebranded the company um, the company had been around for for quite some time. It was, uh, you know, it's a navigation company using MRI live guidance for imaging, similar to what you would do in other parts of the body. But um, neurosurgery has traditionally been done um, without, you know, live MRI guidance. It has some CT scans that are taken, but it's just not the same level of detail you need to to perform really accurate surgeries for. Imagine epilepsy or Parkinson's, um, you know, placing electrodes for deep brain stimulation, uh, laser fibers for laser ablation, and then, you know, the, the trials and the, um, the launches that we're working on for delivering gene therapy, um, where we have a very specialized cannula that can um, be visualized under MR, and, um, and you can make sure you're in the right target. When you have one shot, um, you really want to make sure you're, you're placing that vector in the right place. So this is uh, this this was the opportunity, and um, and we're having a lot of fun.
0: So, how was um, the rebranding process? Because I mean, as you were talking about ClearPoint Nero and having one shot, like how did you come up with ClearPoint?
1: So the com- the product was called ClearPoint, and people always refer to us as ClearPoint. Just like at Volcano, people re- referred to Ivis as the Volcano. Oh, pass me the hand, me the Volcano. <laughs> um, and so it it you know it, it was a natural fit. Um, so it's it's. Sometimes a little confusing to have a company being the same name as the product, but um, but we we got over ourselves and and that's kind of how that happened. So um, it it was it was it was time. The company had gone through two different name changes over the years. Pre FDA clearance, it was called Surgivision, and then when it was FDA cleared, I think the name was changed to MRI Interventions. And that's a bit of a um, a mouthful. Um, and so with Clearpoint, it's really um, more on brand and more more of the direction that we want to go because we probably. Uh, we, we definitely will not be only doing interventions in the MRI. We're, we're working on some products in the OR. And, and uh, so it's, it's you know, we're building for the future.
0: Really, really great to hear. I mean, it seems like there's an element of really picking your tribe and kind of following the people that you admire and respect. And I know that's something you've really taught me um, as I've been growing in my career too.
1: You know, it, you interview your boss when you're interviewing as much as them interviewing you. You know, you want to make sure there's a, there's a good chemistry. If you have a choice, um, if you can choose someone that you uh, admire and trust and you can learn from and they're willing to learn from you as well, that's, that's a really perfect fit for me.
0: I've definitely experienced and learned that throughout my career. So I wanted to shift a little bit and talk about a few of your personal and professional accomplishments. So what, if you're thinking back and reflecting... What makes you the most proud? Um, and let's pick one personal and one professional accomplishment and tell me why.
1: I think um, on the it's easier to talk about probably the professional one <laughs> first. Um, I don't know why. It just comes to mind first. Um, so I think the work that we did bringing together our tribe, you know, we talk about our tribe, our, our group of physicians that we worked very closely with um, to develop IFR, um, that was, you um, that was very rewarding. Uh, there was a lot of momentum and we really harnessed it. Um, you know, everyone who'd been left off of the initial publications on FFR, who'd been left off of that academic group, um, bringing that group together and introducing them to each other and providing opportunities for them to collaborate. Um, there, there's, you know, they've become friends, even the fellows that I worked with at Imperial College are now, you know, they're now flourishing in their attending careers and their, are um, you know, they're, they're full-time uh, Professional careers as interventional cardiologists, but um, I remember when they were just starting out, and you know, they. I remember our first interaction was uh, them getting off a plane for to go to um, TCT in Miami. British Airways had lost their abstract poster, and they're like, "There was, you know." I took them out for dinner, and they were bemoaning this poster that was lost. And I was like, "This is America. We'll we'll just go to FedEx and get it printed." And they're like, "Really? You could do that?" And I was like, "Yeah. Send them to me. I'll I'll, I'll pay for it." It was like seven hundred bucks or something, but. That was it. Like, you know, they, I, I knew the, how important that currency it was, it was, they were abstracts on our technology. So they were, it was helping us, but still it was, you know, their work that they had painstakingly worked on for months and then for it to be lost, it was terrible. So, um, so you know that that's that kind of started it, but then branching out to different geographies and and having you know uh, facilitating some of the visiting professorships and and really connecting people, you know, being that being that connector um, was I would say you know really great from a professional perspective, and uh, and you know I think it, it worked out pretty well for the company too.
0: Yeah, honestly, I mean the the dinners that you're referencing and the meetings you're referencing are I think technically called the pace uh, events now, and. I think diving a little bit into marketing, but what I really learned through that was you have to pick your tribe, pick your positions, pick your champions very, very carefully, especially when you're trying to create uh, or revamp a, a brand new market. So again, diving a little bit into marketing, but how did you think about that as you were championing this new IFR effort?
1: So part of it, you know, was, was something that, that Joe had cooked up. So Joe had kind of thought about, we want to do these dinners. We want to make them not really super corporate. We want to make them scientific. And I had experienced that in the hospital, um, you know, when I was working at Hopkins, where basically um, Toshiba funded my salary. So there was, you know, the group that I was with was, um, we we're a show site and, and I'd been on the other side of what it's like to be inside the hospital and uh, what industry is needing from you. And so I knew as industry what I would want in their shoes. Um, so I'd walked in those shoes. Um, and just the idea of like, hey, we're going to have these meetings. Uh, you can present data that's not yet uh, not yet ready for publication or you can talk about research ideas. This is we're not going to sell you anything. And I remember going to you know going to Europe and some of the European team was like, oh, we're going to put brochures there. I was like, no, no, over my dead body. You're not putting brochures in this meeting. This is about uh, creating a, a safe space for them. Uh, buying them dinner. And, uh, and, you know, we're going to learn a lot, but they're going to learn a lot too. And, um, and, and being able to kind of, you know, under NDA, have people see the portfolio and give feedback and, and um, that's really how it, how it all came about. So it's, I think it's a combination of, uh, I think Joe lit the match and, and I just uh, provided the firewood. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. No, it's uh it's definitely something that I think I've seen in other companies really leveraged. Um, but I, I know that IFR did it resoundingly well. So shifting gears to a personal accomplishment.
1: Probably do my MBA. I don't have a business background. Um, I didn't have a business background, but I worked in business. Um, and I worked mostly in the business of hospital and providing care. Um, so, so doing the MBA was, was not something that, um, I had planned certainly when I started my undergrad or, you know, I said, Oh, I want to go to business school and, you know, do this. Um, So um, that program and, you know, the cohort that I was with or people I'm still friends with today. I just, you know, was emailing with one of them who's up in the Bay area now. And uh, it was, it was a, it was a really great program. It was a, um, it challenged me. It was, but it was, it was really good from a professional perspective because it, it, allowed me even it was the credibility of having the mba but also just the um the confidence i had in in my skills because i was like oh i i can do this like oh this yeah <laughs> i can, like i i've i got this i i'm i'm just as good as anybody else here so i think that's probably the personal one
0: do you have any regrets kind of in in that same realm of things that you wish you had done differently
1: no not at all not at all, because every step that I took, even though it was a meandering path, <laughs> it, it has brought other things to me. And it, is, it has taken me, you know, where I, um, if I, when I was 18, I, I did, had no idea what I wanted to do. So I just studied the things that was interesting to me, that were interesting to me, and, you know, did a lot of did study abroad, which was fantastic. And I highly recommend to anyone um, in their undergrad years to do uh, at least a semester, if not a full year abroad, which is what I did. Um, and it's, it's helped me to this day. And although it maybe took me a little longer to find that path to get on the path that I'm on now, um, I, I don't regret any step that I've taken.
0: That's really good to hear. Cause I know that, I mean, having worked with you, I know that you put 500% into anything you do. And so that that's really, really good to hear. What would you say is the most significant risk you've taken in your career
1: Yeah, I think when I made the transition from um, the hospital to medical device, I, you know, yes, I had an MBA. Yes, I'd done, you know, all that. And i had been working for quite some time. But I I had no idea what really what upstream or downstream marketing was or market development or inside sales or outside sales. And I I really, uh, you know, I kind of went into it a little bit blind and, and fortunately I had a you know, great boss and a great CEO and, and they you know took me by the hand and they had, they had confidence in me and I had a lot of clinical acumen that was very helpful for that role. Um, but that was, yeah, that was a bit of a, that was a, that was a leap. Um, and, uh, you know, part of it was just the opportunity to work, to work in device um, and uh, the opportunity that I had from getting a green card because I'm originally from Canada. Um, and I, uh, when I got my green card is when I could work outside of the hospital. That was very helpful. Um, so it was, you know, kind of, uh, and moving cities and, and, you know, moving across the country and I had a one-year-old and so juggling all that was probably, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of a scary leap, but, uh, you just kind of put your nose to the grindstone and move on.
0: Do you think that there's anything you did differently in handling your risks than you would say your male peers or, you know, other peers that you had around you?
1: No, I I don't think so at all. I think the, the blind leap (laughs) is something that, OK, again, any any statements I make about gender or uh, or any or, or purely my own experience, you know, in my humble opinion um, and are purely anecdotal based on my own experience. So so take them with many grains of salt. But uh, generally, I see um, I'm I'm the mother and stepmother of two boys and obviously have a husband and a dad. And you know, I, I see um, and a brother and I see men take risks. You know, they'll they'll make they'll make the blind leap. Um Generally speaking, uh, some women don't feel as comfortable doing that. They want to have some a safety net. Um, I have a very dear friend who, um, you know, was approached about a, a a leadership role at her firm and. She was like, Oh, I don't know if I have that in me. I was like, you run a household, you have a nanny, you've got all these kids and you, your husband works and you work. Are you kidding me? You're already managing. You already manage stuff. Like you, you, you have it in spades, but often we don't see the things in our life that prepare us for the, our roles in in the corporate world. And they're very, um, you know, a lot of my job is, is, is parenting, you know, at work too, <laughs> So parenting, coaching—you know, listening to people and giving them advice and all that—it's it's the same.
0: When did you feel, or were there any specific instances where you felt like it was especially advantageous to be, you know, who you are um, in your specific situations?
1: Yeah, I think in the integration of Phillips, it really helped that um, I had a, a, an international background. You know, I, I was from another country, and everyone likes Canadians, you know. <laughs> You know, we're all, you know, supposedly super nice. We're a little bit passive aggressive, but we're, we always say sorry. Um, and and the Dutch uh, um, crown prince or uh, princess during World War II was actually sent to Ottawa, Canada during the war um, to keep her safe. And so every year, you know, the Dutch send Canadians these tulips that go under the capital. So there's this nice Canadian Dutch thing. So that was helpful. Um, I lived in Europe. Um, I spoke other languages. I don't speak Dutch, but... Um, I at least tried to speak Dutch, which is a really hard language. Uh, So I think that that really helped. Um, I I had an openness about me um, that perhaps, you know, I I remember some of our colleagues going to Amsterdam, you know, to uh, to the Netherlands, to Eindhoven for the first time. They're like, they want us to take the train. That's public transit. Like I was like, everyone takes the train in Europe. You get off the trains in Schiphol. It's in the airport. You get on the train and you go to Eindhoven. It's not a big deal. But they were like, ah we don't take the terrain. We don't take public transit. <laughs> so um, those cultural uh, things were, were helpful for me to bridge.
0: So a little bit more of a, you know, exploratory question, but um, how have your relationships with your male versus female colleagues really helped challenge you to think and learn differently? And can you describe like a specific situation?
1: Yeah, so, so I think with my, um, with my female colleagues, um, it, I really, uh, so I went to an all-girls school my whole life. So I've, I've always had very, very strong female relationships and female friendships to this day. Um, and there's, you know, there's a certain way that women interact and, and talk to each other and support each other. And I've really um, made it my mission in life to not ever stab another woman in the back. Um, It just, it just doesn't serve. It doesn't serve anybody. And, um, and so I really try to with all of my, you know, female colleagues, women who work for me, I always make a point of, you know, looking out for the best of their career. Um, I really try to support all the women I've, I work with. I also support all the men I work with too. Um, So, so in that way, um, you know, I, I think there's, we've all been in the room when someone's mansplained us or, you know, and and um, I think it's like Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said it best that you know where you really just don't want to show your anger. Um, you want to just take that person aside and have a have a polite conversation. And it may or may not stick, but don't don't get mad. And and that's hard. And and I've I've, I've broken that rule uh, once. Um, where I did get angry um, because some conversation happened and we'd agreed on something in a room. And then later in the meeting, everything went the other way. And, you know, people, people didn't do what they said they were going to do. And I, I lost it. And, uh, and I, I, um, and part of it was, you know, maybe because this person was a man and and that maybe triggered me or in some way. Um, But that's, That's something that I acknowledge later. And uh, I certainly have have worked on just kind of keeping my my mouth shut and then having or or say, you know, if I I replay that conversation in my head, it's like I would have just said, hey, can we have a minute and cleared the room, had a conversation with that person, set it straight and then brought everyone back in. But that's not what happened.
0: How can other people better prepare for some of those situations?
1: I think you have to just uh, put your poker face on you know, and practice your poker face, you know, not, not show, not show emotion because people are expecting you to be emotional about some things and you just can't be for as a professional courtesy. If something, you know, is, um, uh, needs to be a conversation, it should be a conversation versus, you know, an outburst in a meeting. I I do, I do, you know, I, I think that, um, again, anecdotally, as I've seen, uh, men tend to get away with it more than women do. Um, and that's not a a good thing. Um, and not certainly not all men and certainly not the people that I work with, um, now, but, um, I have seen it in the past and, uh, and it, you know, people just kind of shrug it off, but it, uh, I I think if a woman were to do do that, it's taken much differently. It can really be a, a, a mark against you.
0: Is there anything you and I can do to kind of make it less shrugged off, but then also not necessarily put ourselves in the crossfires?
1: I think it's that one-on-one conversation. I think it's you know speaking to that person, human to human, and just saying, "Hey, this is this was this was not okay, and uh, we really need to work on this. Um, it's not productive." Um, and and it's hard. It's hard if that person's you know uh, they may be a superior to you, maybe not in your direct line of reporting. Um, it it gets it gets tricky.
0: Yeah, and I think one thing you've told me too is. Practice those conversations. Don't just go and have that conversation. Go practice it. Practice it with your mentors. Practice it in front of a mirror and make sure that you're, you know, comfortable before you just, you know, decide you're gonna, you know, take somebody aside. You know, you've been a great mentor to me, and I'm so thankful that our paths crossed. Who are your mentors and and how did you find them? And who do you go to for inspiration?
1: Yeah, um, I, I don't think I've ever really had like a formal mentor, uh, ever. (laughs) Um, but I, I've certainly have a network colleagues like, uh, James McNally or, you know, Tara Dunn or, you know, people that, that, uh, that I, I really admire and, um, and really esteem their opinion. Um, and so it's not necessarily a, an an ongoing mentoring relationship. It's really, uh, you know, in the moment, Hey, think about this. What do you think? Or, you know, think about making a change. What do you think? And, um, that's, it's more like a, a friend group than, a, than, a, you know, a formal mentorship.
0: How do you recommend other people find that tribe and that group of people?
1: I think it's just people that you, you, a lot of it's, you know, we spend so much time at work. It's people you work with and, uh, and that you value, you you know, think that they're talented and you think that they're good people and they're authentic and they're, and they're going to, you know. Give you the real deal. You don't want someone just to sugarcoat it. Um, I really look for people who tell me honestly, um, and and those are those are the kind of people I seek out for those relationships.
0: Yeah, and I think if I had to add one thing, um, it would be values that you align yourself with and how they um, uphold and present themselves. Because I think you know a lot of the same people that you've mentioned are people that I look up to um, and you know, definitely go to whenever I have a decision of. Do I take this job? Do I make this move? Do I move to the Bay Area? Um, Brought up. So, you know, talking about leadership, um, I think great leaders have the innate ability to make important decisions without 100% of the information they need. And you've done this a lot in your career, just, you know, moving cross country, taking on different roles. Um, But can you share your process um, around making some of these? Big decisions.
1: I can share with you that it's mostly my gut, and 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 that is not helpful when people are like, "How do you do this?" You just have to kind of listen to yourself and listen to is this what this what I really want? Is this really meeting these needs? Is there some you know best uh, offer alternative to a negotiating agreement? Is there something something else out there? Um, Because a lot of times we get really pigeonholed and like it's this or nothing. You know, I think you and I have had that conversation. It's not a zero sum game. It's this or everything else that's out there that you still don't know. Um, a lot of it for me has been just the, the opportunity. And, and maybe, you know, I, I had some restrictions because of, you know, citizenship issues where I didn't have as much leeway. Um, and so it was, you know, the best opportunity available to me at that time. But, you know, as, as I, I progressed in my career and, and, you know, I've been here and now I'm a citizen. And so I have a lot of I can do anything I want, uh, which is great. Um, it's like what, are I really, what do I really want to do? And it's like I want to work with these people. You know, I want to I want to work for Joe again. Yeah, I, I definitely want to do that. That's that's where it becomes very easy. But at the beginning of your career, it's 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 kind of hard. You just have to say like, is this is this going to be a good fit? Is it going to be um, uh, an industry that's growing? Because you, you you know you can imagine these days if you're working in the hospitality industry and with a pandemic, it's it's really challenging for for these people. And for them to get out of that industry when your whole career has been in that, it's, it's hard to make, to make a leap. Um, I, I look at my husband. He's a registered nurse, worked at bedside for m- decades, um, has done everything in the hospital, and recently moved to medical device to uh, work at Dexcom. And it was a big leap for him, and it was like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. And, and then, you know, he, he did it, um, uh, partially with James McNally's uh, uh, guidance. <laughs> so James keeps coming up. And a great book. Uh, it's called How to You Know How to Design Your Life that uh, that that we we've all read and and kind of internalized and say, look, okay, hey, what do you really want? Uh, what do you want your day to look like? Do you like to be outside? Do you want to be inside? Do you want to be sitting? Do you want to be roaming around the country? You know, pick a career and a, and a path that will take do those things that you want to do. Um, and that's that's uh, that's been really helpful for me.
0: This is going to sound weird, but I don't know if I have a gut that I can follow. So how did you? Like hone in on practicing to follow your gut, or like know when it's talking to you. It's such a philosophical question, but it, I struggle with that sometimes.
1: I think you need to spend some time with yourself, to get to know, have insight. Right? It's insight into. It's not about necessarily your your microbiome. It's about your. It's it's really about having insight into your own character, and that and that comes with age. Uh, so I just turned forty eight yesterday. Uh, so so I'm I'm you know officially almost middle aged. But, um, you know, in my twenties, I, I certainly didn't make all the right decisions. I can tell you that. And, and sometimes you go like, Oh, well, the gut was wrong on this one. Uh, but hey, what did I learn from it? And, you know, you you, you tweak, you tweak your, your gut and your, and your knowledge of yourself, um, over, over decades. Um, and I think, you know, in your thirties is when you, you get a better idea, but you really don't really know yourself until your forties. <laughs> You see, have some time. Don't worry. You're you're doing just great.
0: <laughs> I'm still in progress. I, I <laughs> <didn't>
1: <laughs> we're all are all in progress. We're all on a continuous journey of improvement.
0: What attributes do you feel that are the most important for med tech leaders today?
1: Um, chess. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you're really good at chess, um, a lot of it's you know there's a lot of consolidation. A lot of a lot of there's a lot of money out there um, for investment. There's a lot of opportunities to think of your strategy and how you're going to have adjacencies or not or go into something completely different um, I, I really I really think the you know the strategy part is important your network is very important just even for having a conversation about labeling or launching in the EU and and labels and you know, it, there's some debate about well, how the label should be and how we can we have a universal label? Well, you know, we reached out to our former colleagues at Philips, like, hey, what does your label look like? This has, this is a problem that's been solved before. So not having to start from scratch, um, I think, is really great. Uh, so, so keeping that network a- active, um, helping people, and then, you know, they'll help you back um, is is good. Um, I think, yeah, those are kind of the, the, the main things. And just making sure uh, that you are hitting some major unmet need. Um, So again, the, you know, the story of the, the group that made incubators um, for, for Thailand when, you know, they basically were doing, you know, kangaroo care, they didn't need incubators because they were, the babies were getting warmed up by their mothers. And so, you know, knowing that market and knowing, knowing really that you're not creating a hammer that is looking for a nail. And, and a lot of, a lot of companies kind of still do that, um, especially large companies.
0: Actually, going back to chess, do you, do you play chess?
1: Uh, I play very poorly. <laughs> I wish I played better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I play a lot of Scrabble. I'm a really good Scrabble player. So there's a little bit of strategy there, but it's mostly words. <laughs> it's mostly your vocabulary.
0: <laughs> I'm terrible at Scrabble, but um, earlier in the pandemic, because um, I got married earlier Last year, um, we needed some board games to play, so we bought chess. And my husband's really into chess, but I was just learning. And then Queen's Gambit came out, and I got really into it um, and realized there's so many life lessons to be learned with chess. I mean, you can't just be focusing on your offensive. You also have to do your defensive. And... Um, how great it feels to have an attack come out of nowhere and be able to do checkmate um, is, is amazing. So um, I I can definitely see some of those parlays into leadership and into, you know, being a med tech leader specifically. Yeah. There's
1: a, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of moving players um, and you know, that in interfacing with customers and interfacing with competitors and partners. um, And that's, that's really, you know uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: Is there anything else that's kind of on your mind today in terms of you know what's going on in the world or anything else that you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, actually, um, you know, I, I used to always give the advice, especially for like working moms, like all you do need to do is, is hire yourself a wife, you know, just get someone to clean your house and do the, the, the chores that you don't want to do. And, um, and I, I've really... Um, I'm reading a book uh, called White Feminism by an author named Koabak. And uh, basically the premise is that, you know, uh, white women have, you know, have this this form of feminism that is really kind of consumerist and um, very much zero sum. And, you know, when we, when we get someone like a, a, you know, a VP in the white house, you know, there's only really one role for that person. There's only one role in leadership um, versus the idea of kind of thinking about the collective that, that a lot of Native American, African-American women, Hispanic women, you know, are, have been working on um, of having, having a collective. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about my advice of, you know, uh, h- hire someone probably at a, a much lower wage than, than I make to do the things that I don't want to do. And um, I, I, I really am sitting with that and, and figuring out how, what my role is in that and how I can make that role different. Um, And I don't have any answers. It's just something that um, I, I am aware of now I'm aware of um, and uh, maybe should have been much, much earlier. um, And something that I'm, I do plan on doing things differently in my life. And it's not saying, you know, I'm going to hire, I'm going to fire my, my cleaning staff, but, but maybe there's more that I can do for that, team, you know, there's a a group of four, uh, three women and one, one man, um, who, who do a wonderful job and they come in every week and they go to the four corners of the house and, and thank goodness during this pandemic, when everyone's been working from home and kids are going to school at home and, and the house is a mess and I, I just don't have time. And, um, but I, I feel like there's more that I should be doing specifically for, for that, you know, that team, but also in general, how I'm looking at, um, um, the idea of feminism, you know, it's not just about women. I think we're all, you know, there's a spectrum um, of of gender fluidity that that we need to be um, much more open about um, because I, I, you know, I, I think we've done ourselves a disservice by just pushing for the rights of, you know, women in the middle class and who are college educated. Uh, we're, we're leaving a big chunk of people behind.
0: It's, it's really interesting you bring that up because it brought a story that my mom told me again, I grew up in India until I was six, and my grandparents are still in India. And, um, you know, we're definitely fortunate um, to have like a house and be able to have help in India. Um, and so my grandmother um, actually started the business that we have. And so my grandfather then took it over. And as the family grew, because my, you know, my grandmother has six children, um, you know, many other brothers and sisters, and so as the family grew, she had to, you know, hire help um, to be able to take care of everything. But one of the unique things that uh, she did was give everybody an education or a chance at an education for all of the help that she hired, uh, because she understood the value of education and wanted to see all of all of them succeed um, and kind of move up the ladder. And so. Um, you know, whenever we would visit India, it didn't feel like we had quote unquote help at home. They were all uncles and aunties and, you know, everybody that we interacted with. Um, so it's definitely something I you know, didn't realize until you brought it up, but appreciated about um, my family.
1: That's great. That's great. Your grandmother was, she was very insightful and very much ahead of her time.
0: <laughs> yes. She's a, a force to be reckoned with for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. So as we're, you know, coming to a close, there are three questions that um, I want to ask every speaker. So um, number one, what is your greatest leadership superpower? And how have you honed it?
1: So um, I wanted to say, well, I'm very humble. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I don't think you can say, call your humility a superpower. And I'm probably not not as humble as I as I should as I'd like to be. I think um, I really, as I mentioned earlier, I really look out for the people who work for me. I work out, I look out for their careers and I definitely want to add projects and things to their jobs that can be bullet points on a resume when they move on. I don't expect them to work for me forever. And, I, and I'm definitely not threatened by people who are smarter than me. Um, uh, we have a common friend and, you know, we did um, uh, one of those personality tests at Phillips and, and she kind of looked at me and said, I'm the exact opposite of you. I said, of course you are. Like, why would I hire me? I've got me, but I need you. you you've got the exact opposite skill set that I do. Um, and so I, I really, uh, I champion the people I work, for, that work for me. And, and I think that's known. I think people like, you know, it, word got out over, over time. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be the boss that's going to be um, threatened or, you know, push you aside or take your work and take credit for it. Um, not at all. And I, so I think that that is very powerful.
0: What advice do you have for other women that aspire to be either CEO or in other leadership positions?
1: So I think choosing your significant other very, very carefully, uh, that's, that's your backbone. It's the person that um, can prop you up. Uh, you know, you wanna make sure that, especially if you're a successful female, that that person is not threatened by your success. Um, I've seen it happen and it's really unfortunate um, and so I, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've chosen, I've chosen my life mate of someone who, who has always celebrated me, um, and, and in turn, I celebrate him back. But, um, I think that always, I think it happens a lot. I think a lot of wives really, you know, celebrate their husbands, but, um, it doesn't necessarily, uh, in my humble opinion, happen all the time. Um, so that, that is a very important thing. Choose very, very carefully. And, uh, I've, I've, chosen wrong before. Um, so, um, I've, I've been married more than once, but, um, I, uh, I, I finally did, you know, with time and, and learning, uh, and having insight in your character and, and the type of person who would be well-suited to you. It's very important.
0: I think I remember when I told you like, Oh, I'm moving up to the Bay area for, for a boy. <laughs> um, you definitely gave me that advice. So <laughs> okay.
1: it, it sounds like it's working out. Okay.
0: <laughs> Thus far, one, one year down, many more to go.
1: And, and, and you know, one year through a pandemic is uh, <laughs> actually
0: like five. So, All right. So our last and final question, um, who would you say is your role model? And um, why do you think that they've made such an important impact? Yeah.
1: Um, this has certainly changed over time, but of late, I'm very enamored with Stacey Abrams, as I think a lot of people are. Um, I really can't wait to see what she does next. Uh, her playbook, um, you know what she what she did to get out the vote in 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 Georgia was just spectacular. Um, she I don't know if you know the story, but she basically you know her parents were both ministers, and she took the the kind of the the playbook of how you establish a new church and how you get people out to be part of that. Um, And, you know, she, she converted that into, um, you know, the tactics to go door to door to, you know, have people help people on their phones sign up right there, like just, you know, immediacy um, and, and, and just the very personal touch. Um, And I, and I really think that, you know, after everything that she's been through, after losing the governorship, um, to pick yourself up and dust yourself off, and then just say, "Okay, I'm going to give it another shot." And maybe I'm not going to be the one who wins, but I'm 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 good, I'm not going to let this people be disenfranchised again. Um, I I think she's spectacular.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for being uh, my inaugural speaker. Seriously, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: <laughs> you too, Sally. It was great.